Welcome to Frontline Defenders Rights on the Line podcast, presenting the voices, perspectives, and experiences of human rights defenders at risk and focusing on human rights issues across the globe. Welcome, Tara. It's a real pleasure to have you with us, um, especially after your moving testimony at the platform last year. How are you? <laughs> I am very well. It's a beautiful day in Dublin. It's rainy. <laughs> rainy and cold and I don't, I mean it's, I think it's it's wonderful to see the water. Um it's very snowy and cold at home, so okay. it's it's nice to be back. I'm a little like I was saying I'm a, I'm a little tired just from not only jet lag but also uh doing jail support for one of my dear friends who was arrested in the Atlanta Cop City protests. Mm-hmm. They were at a concert and I think because of them being a brown indigenous uh, person, they were um, tackled by police, uh, tased, put in chokehold, and they struck them in the face. And so they've really had a really hard time. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just really scary being the charges that all of them are facing. I think this the, this is like the United States really pushing to see how far they can criminalize environmental protest. Mm-hmm. Um, they've charged 41 people with domestic terrorism. Oh wow! Those are very serious charges. Mm-hmm. That 35 years in prison. I mean, it's they're they're very very serious. Mm-hmm. So. And the likelihood of of them following through on that is it is it sort of a scare tactic or do you think? It's- so there has been national coverage of what's happening in Atlanta because of I know some of what's happened like on the ground. So there's been um, both from the police side, there's been use of less lethals. There's also been some fires that have broken out and things like that. So I think, you know, there's more attention maybe than was thought there might be on this particular resistance. Um, to give just a bit, a bit of background, um, basically, the city of Atlanta had approved the raising of a forest in a largely black neighborhood. Um, so their their park area um, to build a very large scale police facility, like training facility. So police from all over the United States would come in and train in this place. Um, there was an occupation that took place over the like span of last year, like tree sitters and people holding space and all that. And then... Um, a land defender was killed by police and at the end of last year and I think this is like the this is the response to that um, I think that as far as the scare tactic I don't know I mean I think because there is attention the folks that very clearly were not there's I mean I, I was, none of them are engaged in domestic terrorism but the folks who were like holding a sign or standing in a field like my friend was I mean there's no way I don't think that that will stick um but at the at the same time I think based on what we saw with Jessica Reznicek um a land defender against the Dakota Access Pipeline I'm I'm deeply concerned that this is them trying to set a new norm for environmental defenders in particular okay so I think that that gives some insight into you know the work that you're doing as a as a tribal attorney is what you you know identify as and also a land environmental indigenous defender but 
also a citizen of Kuchinching First Nation. Um, so yeah, I just want to go back to the beginning and you know tell me about your identity and your history as a citizen of the Kuchinching First Nation. What does that mean to you? What's the what is the history for you? How has it influenced your upbringing? You know. So I grew up in a very small, actually I'd say more of a village um, in the forest on the lake, on this, on this very big lake um, on the boundary between uh, Minnesota and Ontario. The U.S.-Canadian border actually goes right through the center of the lake. And so my tribe is on one side, which mm -hmm. is the Canadian side, and I was born on the other. So I'm a U.S. citizen. Okay. Um, but I grew up in the woods, you know, I grew up hunting and fishing and all the things. I did not really, um, I'll say, I did not see much of the world until I was much older. Um, there was more people when I went to college in Minneapolis, there was like more people in my classroom than there was in my entire town. There's more people on the sidewalks than there was in like the whole area, you know? I mean, it was, it was some serious culture shock. Um, but it's greatly influenced, I think, uh, a lot of different pieces of, you know, I deeply, deeply care about the environment. Um, it wasn't really like the environment is just mm -hmm. the reality of, you know, we eat fish in the particular times of the year and we <laughs> deer and others and yeah, um, I grew up and I guess, you know, I knew it was kind of an inkling that it was, you know, pretty serious poverty, but there's a lot of quote unquote poor folks mm. where I'm from, but I mean, we're not very poor in other things, right? Like in understanding our relationship to the world and that we can't live without water. Mm. <laughs> Those are critical pieces that I still cannot believe people don't understand. Um, like when I got to the big cities and I was like, okay, so where's the water coming from? Where's all the food coming from? And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Mm. And realizing it came from, a lot of it comes from where I'm from, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, I, I carry those values, I think, that I've learned growing up of um, having a mutual relationship with nature and not being so extractive. So if you're gonna take something from the forest, then you better treat the forest with respect um, and be really thoughtful about your relationship. Um, and I have done things like um, uh, more sustainable practices, old practices of you know burns and stuff like that. And just, I grew up with a healthy ecosystem basically, you know, and that was really, I think actually as I've moved into doing this environmental justice work, oftentimes in other communities, not in my own. Um, it's just, it's been such an eye-opening experience of seeing really um, impacted ecosystems. So it's the forest, but you can tell it's all one tree or two trees because it got cut so many times, it's been logged so many times. Or, you know, there's all this undergrowth and underbrush that's actually not from that region. But, you know what I mean? It's like, or the lakes or the water, the water is so impacted and contaminated already. You know, it's already impaired. That's what they call it, impaired waterways. And 
adding on top of that, like the, you know, now we're going to put in the tar sands pipeline, we're going to put in a mine. You know, that's what the, the big corporations are up to. And that's just been really eye opening to me. I while you while you are like speaking about all of these things, I'm thinking of and I've got this quote here that I think is so beautiful that you that you mentioned in your your testimony, and I can read it out quickly. Because I think of the beauty I've witnessed in struggle, the moments when I see new land defenders call to the rivers and forests connect to what's real. When a spark passes between the earth and an outstretched human hand. And the web of life and our place within it becomes actualized, even if just for a moment. Humility, empathy, love as practice. The earth is a relative, not a resource. I think that is so beautiful. And uh, yeah, I think just hearing you speak about your relationship to to the earth, it's it's really refreshing. It's it's what environmental justice is about. You know? Something that I've encountered that it's been really surprising to me and also saddening in some ways is I know a lot of people that care about the environment right and they uh, build either careers around it or they're maybe in more of a defensive justice position right where they're actually the impacted community but something that has been really eye-opening is even for folks that are engaged in the struggle to protect the earth there's oftentimes a lot of disconnection it gets a report that's been read it's a set of figures and statistics and a breakdown of well it's not it's no longer a, a river is sick it's 80 percent of this water supply has been impaired and 20 percent currently remain it, like it's like a such a it's such a cold disconnected way of looking at things and mm. you meet a lot of people who almost like visit nature you know what i mean it's like they'll they'll go and go for a very kind of like a very limited experience of i'm gonna hike through this place and i'm gonna walk through it as quickly as i can and i'm gonna decompress for a little bit and then i'm gonna go right back to what i was doing and i know i think that that relationship with nature is you know of course any relationship is important but i really do believe it that spark i'm talking about when i've seen people looking at the earth as a relative as a living being and they're protecting the earth physically with their bodies and with their freedom and all that it, it just it's like such a i think it's such a different connection mm. of of really understanding that you are just one little piece in this giant web mm. and you're not in dominion of nature nature is not a place that you visit you're with nature all the time like mm. even sitting in this room right we're and manipulated earth but it's still earth mm -hmm. like we're both made of earth everything we're wearing is from everything that we are is from the earth and yeah i wish there was maybe perhaps more care and space given to uh the the importance of connecting mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. um people who care about mm -hmm. the environment yeah. you know i always say the that relationship with the environment in terms of you know the the struggle that started about seven plus years ago that it's more than just you know we are protecting our land but again like throwing back to the fact that it's the earth you know it's more than just our land it's it's actually this thing that we care about you know um 
So take me through that. Take me through when this all started for you. Um, where did it start? And yeah, take me through the journey. So I went off to college and then I went to law school because I didn't, I wanted to go to med school actually. And then I worked in healthcare and saw insurance in the US and <laughs> it was a nightmare. And I was like, okay, I'm not, there's no way I'm doing that. Um, went to law school because one of my friends basically was like, well, you could do this. What are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. I don't, I have no idea what to do. So I went to law school on a complete, I didn't even, I didn't know anything about lawyers really. Um, I made my way out to Washington, D.C. And when I was out there, I was representing tribes, tribal nations from all over the United States. Um, but started already pushing on doing pro bono work, so free work for um, nations that were pushing back against a pipeline project called Keystone XL um, because of my own interests in nature. You know, I just I care so deeply about nature and being in a space where you're, you know, I mean, I was thinking my own community, like, okay, well, what if we had a giant pipeline, a giant tar sands line that was going to go through our our lake? What would that, you know what I mean? Like, how what would that feel like? That would be so. And so I was thinking of these people down in, at this time, you know, it was like um, the Oglala Lakotas in South Dakota and. Yeah, I mean, all the people that were rallied around and all the different nations that would be impacted by this project. So I started volunteering my time on that, and then I started going to demonstrations and protests, yes. quote-unquote protests. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't go to a demonstration until, like, 2014. I'd never been to any sort of march or anything like that, but started going to those in my lunch breaks as a first year associate and then I started trying to organize and donate as much of my time as possible and then it kind of like actually kind of created a lot of conflict with my uh, law firm and then it was like what do you are you moving in the right direction like are you do you want to do this work and I was like I do and then they're like laying out all these different (laughs) articles I'd written about Keystone XL about this oak flat mine about you know just in different environmental struggles and I was like well these are things I care deeply about because I'm a native person and this is like where my heart lies is with nature. And that's like part of our, Mm. it's part of our cultural, Mm. (laughs) literally our cultural fabric, but also our existence, right? Like if you don't have the land, you don't have your culture. Like there is that one does not exist without the other. Um, And so I ended up going in a different direction. Um, And at the same time, I actually got asked by Bernie Sanders folks to go and help him with his presidential campaign. In 16 so I got to work on the policy platform of like what mm. what could you possibly want and called every native person I knew all the native attorneys and I was like what would you want if you could have anything and I got to write this platform that was really cool um, but then Bernie lost yeah. and Dakota access was happening like this pipeline project was happening and I saw LaDonna Allard go on Facebook live uh, she's an elder from Standing Rock and there's this woman that I had never met before, but she was so compelling. Like, I could tell everything that she meant. She really meant it. And she was like, you know, we need your help. Please come and stand with us. Um, and then these youth runners came all the way from Cannonball, North Dakota, 
to Washington, D.C. They ran the entire way, like 2,000 miles. And they came, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is it. You know, like, there's people that are... Because I had been working on the Hill at that time, like, for all those years. I worked in the White House first, and then I worked for tribal... Like, for the law firm and for Bernie and whatever. And it's seeing our people over and over and over again, advocating and over and over again, just having their rights completely run over, um, disrespected, disenfranchised. And here were people that were like, no, but they were going to do something different. They were going to stand in front of the machines. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. Um, so I packed up everything I had in a rental car and went to North Dakota. I planned on staying for like a couple weeks was my thought. And I was there for like six months and met all kinds of incredible longtime land defenders, new land defenders. I became LaDonna is a person I call my auntie. She's since passed on, sadly, but um, I mentioned her in my testimony, too. Um, but yeah, it's... And ever since that, like, kind of, like, returned to the land, more or less, you know, like, that has been something that's really called to my spirit about. Mm-hmm. And those those six months were when you guys would stay, phys- you, you were physically there on the side? Yeah, we were occupying, you know, and we were, we were not, you know, I'd done some of the organizing out in D.C. with, like, petition deliveries and, you know, it rests in front of the White House and marches and all of that and signs and this was something different, right? This is like you're physically standing on the land. You're like, no, we're not going to move. This is our land. And, I mean, that became a a movement that I was heard around the world, right? I mean, people were like, wow, there are still Native people and they're still being oppressed and this is still happening. How do I get involved? You know, how do I help? Um, and what was, what was that like, that experience? What, what are your memories of that time? Of being out in Standing Rock? Um, well, there's all kinds, right? I mean, there's like the beauty of what it's like to kind of return to our roots in a lot of ways as indigenous people where there were so many of us from different nations and we were living together and not following a really rigid this is like the time and money you know type orientation and that was like the the main it was no like we're all different people and we're sharing and we're walking around and uh telling stories and sharing food and sharing language and all of it and prayers with each other it was really powerful there was those pieces and then there was also actually trying to stop the building of the Dakota access pipeline which was very uh brutal in a lot of ways and um very eye-opening in terms of the level of brutality that police were willing to wage to protect a fossil fuel pipeline Mm -hmm. um uh, i mean people with uh, there's one woman who almost lost her arm. Um, wow. There's a young guy who, you know, lost vision and he was he was blinded in one eye. Um, they were they used water cannons on us and freezing temperatures and there was hundreds and hundreds of people with hypothermia, just like treating them in the high school gym. You know what I mean? Like is really wild to see that level of brutality and like the tanks and I don't know I mean there is a moment that I will never forget as long as I live of seeing 
Native folks, young Native pe- people on horseback, run it like flying across the prairie, and then police officers in like these ATVs chasing them, shooting at them with less lethals, and I'm like watching. I mean, literally Indians on the prairie being chased by, and it was just, and this is also in the place like where these things actually happened, right? Like you're in these places that are called, you know, different fort names, right? Like they're, you're watching history replay itself again. And, you know, and then there's also like the beauty of what we're the same, I think, um, beauty you see between those between our people of and and nature so at one point that when that was happening there is also this huge herd of buffalo mm. that turned and came towards the police line with like all the tanks and us and we're all calling out for them and it's like you can hear the rumbling coming over the hill and then all the police like kind of stopped you know and are like look and they're terrified right like seeing what's happening and that was a really, I think, I mean, that's a moment that, you know, you're like, our, we're still fighting for what's really important. We're still fighting for what's real. And the reason that these people are so scared of us is because they think they know that deep down in their truth of, as human beings, like that what they're doing is wrong. You know, like I've seen the surface level, you know, excitement of cowboys and Indians or whatever, but I think there's also like a reality of the earth is telling everyone at this point. Mm-hmm. The damage you've inflicted has a has a consequence, you know. Um, but yeah, that's how I found my way back to, to doing land defense work. And then I went home and they were starting to build the Line 3 pipeline, which I already knew before I went to Standing Rock. I actually had already protested and worked on the Line 3 pipeline back when I was in D.C., um, on the legal pieces around it at that time so they were they proposed basically um, there's like these transnational crossings um, where it crosses an international border a pipeline does and they were basically saying they already had an existing easement for like this little pipeline but they wanted to build a brand new tar sands line but they were saying oh well it's just maintenance even though it's a completely new pipeline project it's just maintenance we already have this we don't have to apply for a new permit no environmental review and Obama's State Department, John Kerry, agreed with them and said, yes, it's just maintenance. And that was the work I was doing out in D.C., right? And that's like the Democrats, right? Those are the so-called left, the environmentalists. Um, that was really, you know, I think I kind of already knew that, but it was cemented that both sides are really not so far apart. I mean, they all talk with each other. They're all... And as, you know, as... All of these experiences left you kind of a bit more disillusioned in terms of politics. I think it left me in a, in a. I already knew there was corruption. I had an idea of that before I went to Washington D.C. But seeing it firsthand and seeing the level of, um, I don't know, like some of it was so petty, you know. And you're you're gambling with people's lives. So I'm not going to vote for your bill because you didn't vote for mine five years ago or something like it, it, like things like that were really shocking to me. And then seeing so many tired young people like from their 20s to their 30s typically is like the, the bulk of an office that are just working so hard and nonstop to try to get 
whatever they can through their office to change that one person's mind. And that also was something I learned as you look at the staff around a congressional member to really kind of get a sense of who that person is. Who are they hiring? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was disillusioning in some ways, but it was also finding ways to um, be effective in that space. Um, I left with a lot of relationships that I still carry. You know, I think it was a pretty odd thing to host the squad in our resistance camp, but that was like a long-term relationship with various congressional members and staffers. Um, so they can leverage what they can do, you know what I mean? It's not like they're, it's very, very hard to get a win in Congress, but it's it's influential. Yeah. And as you, over the years, you you know you started engaging in more activism, more human rights work. Um, I guess your public profile grew as well. Did that start impacting you in terms of you being in danger, uh, arrests, attacks, harassment, that kind of thing? Yeah, that part was really strange. Especially, I think you know. Folks get this perception because I think my profile started really kind of coming into public view in, in Washington, D.C., that I was like this urban, <laughs> um, highly educated, mm. you know, and worldly person. Um, but in fact, I was from a town of 200 people on the Canadian border and was the first person in my family to go to college and like all of it was new to me. Um, so that part was really strange. Like it was, I cared about these issues. I was writing about these issues and, you know, going to protests and all that, trying to push outside of the system and within the system at the same time at that point. Um, and the work that I was doing around like the Washington football team. So uh, the use of native mascots. Mm that was like my first experience of really starting to get like a lot of death threats and people wow. trying to find out where I lived and like threatening my family and stuff like that. Um, those consistently actually have been some of the worst is football fans, which you wouldn't expect. But I think there's so much within that imagery and that history. I think that when you kind of come at a native mascot as a native person mm. as the present and you're fighting the past I think you're almost to a lot of these folks challenging their own identity as quote unquote Americans yeah. that there was somebody here before and that they didn't conquer these people mm. and they're not a costume to wear like they're sitting right in front of you yeah. and that really forces like a lot of different colonial narratives to be undone in that moment and mm. so the anger and the the, the hatred of those folks is shocking. Like it's mm. truly shocking. Um, this is what prompted the the organization you started about. Is I think it's called Nacho Mascot. Yeah. So it was me and a couple other native folks from around the country, just like on Twitter, and um, we started working together to to talk about these things because mm. I feel like that social media has created this new avenue of voices impacted voices being heard you know i think it's done a lot of other things too but it's definitely created like a new platform for that and yeah i mean i remember at one point i had organized um the first organized march against the washington football team at fedex field 
Um, and the, the, the owner of the Washington football team actually bought all the sidewalks and the roads a mile around the stadium, which that <laughs> level of, I mean, he, his own fans don't like him. So like, there's that, right? Jeez. That level. So we couldn't go anywhere near wow. the stadium. So we had to go out in the tailgating zone and we worked with this church to get this one space. And so you're mm-hmm. right in the heart of the tailgating zone. And there's lots of folks from DC that came, right? So there's like native people, there's a lot of um, black relatives that came. And I remember at one point a young black father like looking at me and he was like, this feels like we're in like the civil rights movement or something. Cause there's people just screaming at us, spitting at us, like Jeez. so like cur- cussing at us. Right. And wow. I looked at him, I was, this is civil rights. Like we're, we're still not considered people by these people. Look at how they react to native people i mean watching a grown man flipping off and screaming at a a nine-year-old kid i mean a nine-year-old native kid that's that's what was happening you know in front of us um yeah it was Mm -hmm. that was my foray into quote-unquote activism Mm. i mean i think there was a one thing before that which was there was a case when i was um studying for the bar bar exam to be a lawyer um, called Baby Veronica. Mm-hmm. There was a little native girl who had been adopted out without her father's permission. Oh. And um, there's a whole set of cases or, or like things around it, but this the really wealthy white couple adopted this native girl and her tribe intervened and her dad intervened to, to stop this from happening. And they fought for years to get her back and ultimately went to the Supreme Court and they lost. So it's so, actually kidnapped her? Liter- literally trafficked her across state lines and all of that. Um, oh gosh. Yeah, and it went to the Supreme Court and the, and the tribe lost. The, the father lost. Oh no. The girl, it was actually, the, the, ca- the case is called Adoptive Couple V Baby Girl because they're suing against her rights to her tribe. Yeah, um, under the Indian Child Welfare Act. So that was what really kind of activated you yeah i was i could not believe that that could happen you know and as a person who didn't necessarily grow up in my tribe because i was in a border town right and i was with my mom dad and my parents had split up when i was like a kid and all that so i didn't grow up with in the lodge with the culture you know going to powwows and all that stuff so i could not believe that someone would try to take that away from from a native kid that's crazy and when and it's still, and I mean, I ended up working in Indian Child Welfare for the last few years of law school. Jeez. The out-of-home placement in Minnesota of Native kids is 17 to 1, so they take Native children constantly um, for all kinds of reasons, usually poverty. Um, yeah, it's... How does the, how does not having the parents' permission, how do they bypass that in the... So what they had done in this... So what they'll do is they'll they'll get the parent, you know, typically a, a mom, right, a non-native mom, um, and they'll accidentally misspell somebody's name. So when they have to notify, because legally you have to notify the tribe and you have to notify um, the parent um, to, to do a, like, search on whether they're indigenous or not, um, then it comes back negative. And then the adoption proceeds, and then there's like an after part that happens, right? If they choose to fight, and that's what had happened. In this case, the the father, they sent him a form as he was about to be deployed to Iraq, because he was an active combat 
military member and they got him in the parking lot as he's about to be deployed and told him that it was wow. signing his rights over to the mom and he was like okay well it's our child yeah but what he was really doing was terminating his own rights and so oh. by the time he landed in iraq he found oh out gosh. from his parents that that actually had happened and so then he began this fight for years for his child and then i mean actually the piece around act activism that i saw was like the law is so clear that that was illegal right like that you have to do these specific things under a new child welfare act you have to do them but what the couple did the the wealthy white couple they lost to the father and so what they did is they went to dr phil and made it this really public spectacle about how this evil native father was stealing their child from them oh my god even though they had held their his child from from them for like the two years it took to get in court right for it to go through court and staged this giant like media circus around him ripping this child out of their arms and so little little baby probably scared out of their mind screaming in front of the cameras as this bad native man takes his child you know like that's what happened yeah and i couldn't believe that that would actually hold weight and it did and they won in this room and i mean ultimately they got their adopted kid back they took her from her dad wow that's yeah, I couldn't believe that could happen. You know, I really couldn't. And there's another Supreme Court case actually deciding another Indian child welfare case. Right now, it'll come out. And I'm sure as a mother that obviously, you know, impacts you. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's when I was pregnant with Josephine, like having the knowledge I do of what happens as a native person when you go to the hospital and give birth to a native child, like you have to be really, I don't know, like I knew that they're going to test me for every kind of thing. I mean, they, they take Native babies from their mothers all the time. Like it's, in it, the hospital? That's happened to numerous clients of ours when we, I was in Indian Child Welfare where you test positive for any sort of drug or alcohol or anything like that and all of a sudden baby's gone. Wow. Yeah. And there's like a whole for-profit adoption industry that mm. really, you know, Native children are really valuable. Jeez. But, Yeah. Wow. And, you know, you, you were speaking about uh, how this narrative is controlled in the media. Um, I think for the last few years, there's obviously been a lot of progress, but for you yourself and, and other activists that are around you, um, what's been, what's the narrative out there about you guys? I mean, I would say this, you know, the first time that I was ever called a quote unquote activist was when the Washington Post was doing a, t a poll of native people in Washington, D.C. about whether the Washington football team was offensive. Mm. And they found me on Twitter and they're like, do you think this is offensive? And I was like, yes. And they in the paper called me Native American activist, Tara Hauska. And I was like, I've never even been to a protest. <laughs> so I think like, at least from everything I've seen, if you are in any way challenging an accepted narrative, your voice is automatically put into a certain category of non-conforming beliefs, right? Like I was an activist. I wasn't a native person anymore. I was specifically a native activist. Um, and in environmental struggle, I think it becomes even more extremist, right? So 
I'm a native person standing on treaty territory trying to protect our drinking water mm. from contamination. And the narrative that gets spun is I'm a, you know, violent or we are violent extremists mm. who are, you know, I mean, I think the violent piece is like a whole thing in the United States, but we're violent extremists who are opposed to jobs and we're opposed to economy and we don't want our neighbors to be employed, you know, and that's like the, the narrative I think that they constantly push. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing that's happening in Atlanta, Cop City, right? Like these are violent activists. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's really been a, a, a very concerted effort to criminalize protests and to demonize protests in the United States, even though that's how that country actually formed, right? Um, was through protest and through mm -hmm. people that we're protesting a specific way of governance. Um, but yeah, you're if you're a protester, you're sidelined into something else. And if you see machines burning, then you are violent. And it's like, okay, well, which machines called in and told you that they'd been hurt today? You know, like, I mean, I'm not saying that that's... Yeah. The mainstream way of protest, right? But I'm also... I think there needs to be an acknowledgement, at least, that that's not a living being of course. right like that's not a living thing um mm -hmm. like i've been told again and again that i'm violent and i'm like well who who have i ever harmed because my experience of defending the land has been being shot at and being maced and being arrested and you know thrown to the ground and put into <laughs> lock up and strip searched and put in cages and like all the, like all these really violative things and i'm living in the united states if i were somewhere else you know people are openly assassinated and killed and murdered for doing this work and i think we're starting to move i, I don't know i mean you got a land defender that was just murdered in the end of the year last year so where are we headed you know like it's um, and that's what's crazy to me is that, I mean, you at Frontline, you know, we work in thousands of different contexts and we see um, how defenders are also, you know, attacked, arrested, arbitrarily detained, etc., etc. There isn't that narrative out there about the USA. Yeah, that it's like this kind of belief that the United States is, we respect, you know, they respect rights. The, the right to demonstrate the freedom of speech is absolute. I think there's elements that are maybe true of that. And yes, we can, st we still have like access to the internet that's not controlled entirely by, you know, yeah. a, govern a, a government. At the same time, <laughs> mm. if you're a certain kind of protester, so if you're, if you're a, a person that's over there overthrowing the US Capitol and killing police officers, those folks got misdemeanors how many months later because of the push like you overthrew the u.s capitol but then over here you've got forest defenders who are trying to protect a forest and media source after media source after media sources calling them violent agitators who are from out of state right and that's kind of like this this narrative is oh they're they're Antifa, they're from out of state, and it's like, okay, well, first of all, Antifa means anti-fascist. Mm. Like, it's not this... Yeah, that's all that it means. That it's an ideology, right, of you're against fascism. Mm. And 
the out-of-state thing, I mean, who was at the U.S. Capitol? Were they from out-of-state? I'm guessing they probably were. You know what I mean? And if you're in a local local community, you know how hard it is to stand up against your neighbors when they're like, you know what I mean? Like, because there's going to be neighbors that are probably employed by Cop City and that are scared to say anything. Not to mention the fact that, like, it's a black neighborhood to begin with. Mm-hmm. And the relationship between police and black folks in the United States is not... We've seen it again and again. There was just an uprising that happened because George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis and because of all the deaths before that time. So, yeah, I think that um, the outside looking in of the United States being like kind of like the gold standard of mm-hmm. rights mm-hmm. being respected is just not... It depends on whose rights. Yeah, and in the beginning, you, you mentioned the the 40 plus people are, that are currently being charged with the domestic terrorism. Has there been cases of, um, of human rights defenders um, being imprisoned or in detention, you know, f- over a longer period of time and slap suits and leaders being, you know, strategically put away? Yeah, I mean, slap suits are very common tactics. So strategic lawsuits against public participation where they're they intentionally name a whole bunch of people, drag them into the legal process. There's actually been one from Standing Rock in North Dakota that's been going on. It's still going on even now, um, years later, because they lost and then refiled in North Dakota co- courts. So still going. Um, Greenpeace was named as lead in that, even though Greenpeace was very minimally involved in the Standing Rock resistance and I think helped with like a fundraiser or something like that. But yeah, I mean, it was an indigenous led struggle, but in in any case, um, yeah, there's that. So that automatically, you know, is like a way to silence, quell protests, to tie people up into these really um, complex legal processes with oftentimes not a lot of resources to defend themselves, um, to fight bogus charges, you know, like they're, they're absolutely bogus charges. Um, and then you see, so Jessica Reznicek, who I mentioned, um, is currently serving a seven year prison sentence for land defense against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, she's a Catholic worker. She was charged with, um, domestic terrorism or like the enhanced, um, terrorism charges. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's happening in a very i think quick time frame because that just she went in and now we're seeing this like new round of domestic terrorism charges i mean even in minnesota where we were and also in the bayou bridge struggle in louisiana um we're being charged with gross misdemeanor trespass on critical infrastructure or felony trespass on critical infrastructure so they've been there's been this group called alec um that's been going around to state legislatures showing up trying to pass bills against protest, specifically legislation around protests involving critical infrastructure, so pipelines, mines, anything involving extraction, um, which oftentimes read anything involved, Mm. organizing, demonstrating, Mm. speaking about, like anything qualifies as as a felony protest to try to stop protest. Those bills didn't pass in Minnesota. They tried multiple, multiple times, um, but it's happening all over the country. And what keeps you, what keeps you motivated? What keeps you going through all of this? You know, knowing 
one day it could possibly be you. Um, Even in just the, the time that I've been involved, um, which has been quite a while at this point, but still, I mean, it's like generations of struggle, right? Generations of resistance um, since colonization, honestly. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I see a new generation coming in. I see a generation that is a bit more healed than my own, like every generation. Mm-hmm. Um, I see a generation of folks who are reflecting the gender gradients that's in nature. Um, so I see non-binary, two-spirit, mm-hmm. multi-gendered, non-gendered people. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful. And they're in, of, of all colors, right? So black, brown, indigenous, white, like mm-hmm. really um, coming together in this beautiful way. Mm-hmm. I think that's like so powerful to, to witness. Um, I also really take so much inspiration and I talked about it in that testimony of seeing all those folks standing alongside suburbanites, standing alongside Congress members, standing alongside grandmas, you know, like the, the raging grannies standing alongside, you know, I mean, standing alongside community members, like everyone recognizes what they're there for and, but also what's at stake. Right. And like, it's so powerful to see that level of connectivity between people and to see that unity even if they're all from different perspectives and understandings of the world Mm. like to understand like we have one home we this is not ours it never was it belongs to those to come like every generation right like belongs to josephine and josephine's Mm. children and grandchildren it doesn't belong to you you're only here for a little bit of time that is so powerful to witness and to see and you know we're not it's i think it can be hard losing over and over again mm-hmm. yeah, i know it is um but at the same time i also see like how many lives you impact and how many folks you touch and reach and inspire and the ripples that you create mm-hmm. you know when you're doing this work um But yeah, I mean, you take some pretty serious spiritual and physical damage along the way, um, you know, and time away from your family and time away from a lot and you know, give up a lot, but it's, it's for a reason, you know, it's, it's for something that's more powerful and yeah, I mean, that's what, that's what it's all about, right? Is this, this, this matters more than myself, right? Like this is, this is life that we're talking about. And tell me, tell me about the Ganyu Collective. What is, what is that about? Yeah, so we came together back in 2018, in June of 2018, when they passed unanimously the approval for Line 3 project. Um, there had been a really concerted effort in the years prior to that in the regulatory review process. There were 68,000 comments submitted against oh. the project. That's a lot. And there was five people on the commission and five people unanimously voted for the pipeline to, to proceed. Jeez. Yeah. And one of them like had like big tears and said, I felt like there was a gun to my head. And I was like, you could say no. The science is against it. The people are against it. We've all been heavily engaged in the public participation process. And you've had your Enbridge table set up this entire time. 
and they've got mm-hmm. like their nice faces they paid to say things that are mm-hmm. gonna make you feel better we've told you about the sex trafficking that will come and it did we've told you about the contamination that will come and it did told you about how this is going to damage our water aquifers and it did you know like all those things have happened mm. the only thing that hasn't at this point is the giant spill that mm. we're all very scared of um GNU collective was formed in that time um i look to a lot of the things i learned in standing rock uh recognizing that there was a need to build a resistance framework um before the moment of pipeline construction. So we spent a couple of years um, because they started construction in 2021 Mm. or end of 2020, but most of it was during 2021. Um, We began training people like this is, this is what decolonization means. This is what treaties are. This is what um, a feminine two-spirit place led place looks like you know this is a different different understanding of movement and resistance um and protocols and cultural understandings of each other um this is how you engage in nonviolent direct action this is all the different tools that we have in front of us to try to figure out how do we reach these people you know and how do we reach each other too how do we bring more folks in to to recognize this struggle um, we trained over a thousand people during the course wow. of the, the, the three years um, in all those skills. Mm, that's amazing. I've talked about decolonization and treaties so many times um, <laughs> and given people a basic like understanding of the legal framework. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's we're a bunch of indigenous two-spirit folks living in the woods together for years. Um, that's been a huge adjustment in my life. I think as of now as being back inside, back indoors with like running water and electricity, it's been very strange to, wow. <laughs> okay. So we're, I'm not living in a little shed in the woods anymore. I've been living in a little shed in the woods for a long time. Do you miss it? Oh yeah. I, I mean, imagine you would. <laughs> of course. I mean like the, the stillness and just the, you're in nature all the time. It's, you know, you're not spending much time inside your little structure. You're out and you're visiting and you're around a fire and you're, yeah, it's, I, I do miss it a lot. Um, I'm also still like, I'm at home now, like, cause that was, the camp was right off the pipeline. It was about uh, 300 yards off the proposed project. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a thing too, right? At one point there was like, because of our very fierce resistance to the project and like the number of I think solidarity actions of you know trying to stop work sites and trying to intervene and create pressure the county sheriff actually sent like 50 police officers and there was like a blockade in our driveway they said our driveway wasn't a driveway anymore they tried to blockade me into my home oh my god yeah and I like, arrested 12 people in our driveway it was it was a really wild day. I've never like seen anything. Like, you people in your driveway. Mm-hmm. On the basis of? They said that our driveway wasn't a driveway, that it was a trail, like a county trail. And ridiculous. No, we had to actually sue them and, you know, to, like, because they were heavily surveilling us. They were sending helicopters over and had a police officer parked across the way, and then they were doing patrols, and they were ticketing us, like, for going to in my home, right? 
Uh, we just won against the county sheriff like a, a few months ago, right? Like that was, it took that long. <laughs> but he finally lost. Our driveway is a driveway. Yeah. It's been a driveway for 50 years. Um, yeah. And you, do you still find that there's hostility in your neighborhood? Um, okay, so that, like I said, that's about 300 yards off the proposed pipeline route. I'm actually about three hours north of that on the border. So I'm home now. Um, I think, I don't know. I mean, I don't really get hostility in town. I'm sure there's like plenty of folks who feel really conflicted about <laughs> my activism, quote unquote. Um, I think, you know, down in that area of the pipeline itself, yeah, yeah. where, you know, I mean, that's where mm. my child's father is from and mm. a bunch of, you know, community like yeah. that I've, I'm accountable to is from um, I think there's still some ongoing kind of hostility there usually is after native people stand up for something we believe in there's anger and why'd you do that but I think they also kind of see like there's been multiple water aquifer breaches of like literally hundreds of millions of gallons of water that drowned the rice that messed up all the watersheds and all of that and they're like the pipeline the pipeline company did this and it's like yes we told you that the pipeline company doesn't care about our communities okay. and the jobs are all gone now because the pipeline is built there was no long term jobs there never was you know we told you that Jeez. yeah wow <laughs> right so for you going forward you'll you'll still be working on the new collective what is what is the next few years or months look like for you so while the pipeline was in full swing and construction in 2021, um, I went home for a weekend to see my family and let my mom know I was all right, <laughs> you know? Um, and I've been thinking and praying about like what, cause you know, it's going to go one way or the other. And we've been working for so many years, you know, some of us on fighting this project. It's like, okay, so we need something that's more sustainable than just bouncing from place to place. And that's kind of like what a lot of land defenders do. They go from place to place to place and they don't mm. have anything of their own and not a lot of time for rest. Mm. Um, so I uh, went home and on our community bulletin board, there was like a land posting for sale <laughs> and it was like a full island on wow. Rainy Lake. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's wild. Like, there's no islands left because the park took everything. The national yeah. park took most of my people's territory. And I asked my parents, like, could we go check this out? You know, could we go in the boat and check this out? And we're like, yeah, sure, let's go. And went and put tobacco down and did my best to talk to everyone I knew that I'd never asked for anything for, anything from before. Um, we closed on that land in 2021. Um, and hosted some of the folks that were from camp at that time and through the last year. And then this last summer, um, right after Josephine was born, this piece of land went for sale that's been in one family since it was homesteaded. Wow. And they never sold off any pieces of it. It's like a fully intact 16-acre property with cabins and a lodge and docks and just this beautiful camp. And and I was like, wow, this is like the spot, right? Like, this is where we could really build something long term. And we closed on that in January of this year. Lovely. So I'm like working on a land back project. We're going to 
That's amazing. It'll be a respite for land offenders uh, as a heal. It'll be a retreat space for people. It'll be a language revitalization space and cultural practices and mm-hmm. building, I think, people that carry the, the earth in their hearts, you know, and really understand. Like, mm-hmm. this, is what we're fi- this is what we're fighting for. This is why we're mm-hmm. putting ourselves at risk. It's not for a set yeah. of statistics and figures and climate change. It's for the earth that's our relative. Thank you for the time, for the space. Um, Love to all the land defenders out there.